Hello and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work and how scientists are studying them. In episode four, we looked into the science of smell, from mechanisms of smell loss to how companies create scents to keep us thinking about them. What we didn't talk about yet is how our sense of smell is intimately associated with another sense close to all our hearts, taste. So, how does that work? How do different brain regions come together to create the experience of flavour? And what environments make food taste better or worse? I set off to London to find out. Hi. Hello. Sorry I'm so late. And after a slight delay, I arrived at Copper and Ink a restaurant set up by MasterChef UK finalist Tony Rodd in 2018. The ceiling was covered in gorgeous purple, blue and pink flowers and I was led downstairs near to the open kitchen to meet with head chef Robert Parks, who also spent time on MasterChef UK. I didn't exactly take the traditional avenue into working in restaurants. I was encouraged to apply for MasterChef because I always loved cooking and cooked a lot at university. I was fortunate enough to get through to the semi-finals and got a job off the back of that. And uh, now I run the kitchen at Copernic alongside Tony Rod, who was another MasterChef alum. And uh, we've been doing this for coming on for four years now. I grew up in London, which has a massive impact and influence over what I eat and what I cook in the sense that I've always felt in London like I've got access to, you know, all the food under the sun. Um, I'm also of mixed heritage. So my dad is Jamaican and my mum is English. So that also sort of broadens the palette of food that you eat when you grow up. Like my Sunday dinners always had rice and peas and some kind of element of like jerk chicken or jerk pork alongside more traditional like roast potatoes and things like that. You're very lucky. I grew up in Glasgow and in those days... It was boiled vegetables. They boiled until it took all the flavor out of them. Uh, and that was when you saw a vegetable. I mean, when I was growing up, mash and chips were too veg, as far as the Scots were concerned. <laughs> this is very reassuring to hear. That smooth Scots accent you hear is Professor Barry Smith. A philosopher by training, he became fascinated by the complexities involved in the science of taste and now is the director of the Centre for the Study of the Senses at the University of London. He's also an occasional guest judge on MasterChef UK, so he really knows his food. While Rob got busy in the kitchen preparing us a meal, Barry and I got into the science behind how we experience flavour. It's always taste, touch and smell. It's not taste with the tongue working by itself. And not only that, the big revelation was that the senses don't work independently of one another. They're always interacting to influence each other's behaviour. I think a lot of us have heard that your taste is related to your sense of smell, but I'd never thought about touch in that context. Mm. How does that work? So if you think of it, I mean, as soon as you pop something in your mouth, whether you're sipping a drink or you're chewing some food, you feel the texture of it. If you take a sip of champagne or, or a fizzy soda, you feel the prickle of the bubbles across your tongue. You're always interacting with the texture of whatever it is you're tasting or eating. And then, of course, when people say, well, smell is connected to taste, they forget it's smell when it's 
rising from the mouth to the nose. And that's giving us the big flavor hit. So talk me through then. I've seen some food. I'm going to put it in my mouth. I'm going to eat it. How does that then go from putting it in my mouth to my brain interpreting it? Not just, you know, knowing what I've eaten, but the experience of of the flavor. Well, I I like that you start before I even put the food in my mouth, because the, the brain is a predictive machine and it's trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And when you look at food on a plate, that's your first experience of the whole eating phenomenon, because what you're looking at is giving you predictions about how it'll taste how it will feel. You often look at a plate of food and say, oh, that looks delicious. What do you mean looks delicious? Well, it means that you've got expectations about what it'll be when it goes in the mouth. Now, what happens? You put something into the mouth, you feel against the, the sides of your cheeks and on your tongue, you feel the food and you start chewing usually. And, and when you're chewing, you're making it into a, a mass that'll be easy enough to swallow. But as you're chewing, you're releasing aroma molecules and they're traveling from the mouth up through the back of the throat to the nose, to the little receptors in your epithelium at the bridge of the nose. And when you swallow, you're pulsing those odors up to the nose. But your tongue at the same time is picking up salt, sweet, sour, bitter, and the fifth taste, umami from the food. Because our foods, if they've got any flavor at all, they'll have tastes that are one of those basic tastes. The one that people struggle with is the idea of umami, because this was identified by Ikido Kuni in um, 1909. And then he said, well, what is that meaty, savory taste that I get in dashi, in miso soup, uh, in miso broth, in salted fish, in cured meats? What is it? And he called it umami, which really means sort of savory or deliciousness. And it took until 2000 to work out the tongue actually had receptors that pick up umami because umami is an indicator of proteins it's telling you you're going to have something that's meat or fish or shiitake mushroom these contain sort of umami flavors but but certainly it's tracking proteins mainly and when you have the registration of these tastes on the tongue the brain projects those signals to the insula and the insular cortex is the primary taste cortex Meanwhile, smell is being projected to the olfactory bulb and the piriform cortex. And then you have to integrate that information. And you do that in a place called the orbitofrontal cortex, which is sort of between your eyebrows and just above your nose. And in there is where you combine touch, taste and smell because you get signals about the texture and the, the feel of the food. And you also get the hedonic reaction. Do I like it? Do I not like it? When we think then, you know, so we've got these different parts of the brain that come together to create one experience. We've all seen those pictures of a tongue separated, you know, sweets on the tip and sours on the back or whatever. Is there any legitimacy to that or are the receptors for the different tastes spread out across the tongue? Yeah, the, the, the tongue map is a sort of famous illusion. The tongue map is almost right, but for the wrong reason. So people used to think that all your sour receptors were on the side of the tongue, all the sweet were at the front and bitter was at the back. No, you've got receptors for all of these things all over the tongue. However, you do predominantly taste sweet things at the tip of the tongue. You predominantly taste bitter things at the back. Now, now having that kind of enhanced experience of bitterness at the back of the tongue is quite important because bitterness indicates toxins. Not all toxins are bitter, but, but most are. And so if you're eating something and the 
bitterness builds up. By the time it gets to the back of the mouth, that's the last moment at which you decide, do I want to eject it? Ugh. Or do I want to swallow? So it's quite good to have bitterness keyed to what's going on at the back of the tongue. So, so the tongue max has got something to it, but not for the reason it supposes. And I guess that talks to why we evolved to have a sense of taste at all, which presumably is so that we eat things that are good and we don't eat things that are going to kill us. Absolutely right. And, and also, we need those tastes to identify the things that we must have. So, for example, the body doesn't produce salt, but it needs salt. If you don't have salt and you get your electrolyte balance wrong, you know, you can die. So, so you have to be able to taste salt because that's the way you know if you're ingesting it. But the, the two basic tastes that are innately specified as giving us things we like are sweet and umami. So sweet because it's a very fast indication of sugar intake. So you're able to detect sugars and they will give you a quick source of energy. But umami is picking up on proteins and those are things that, you know, your body needs the amino acids it wants to store that's going to help build, you know, bones and brain and all the things that we really have to have. So those are the two that are absolutely fixed from the beginning. Children will like the taste of things if they have umami, if they have sweetness. Sourness, no. And sourness is actually not so much about detecting, it might be about detecting things that are uh, spoiled, but it's very much about finding out, have you got a taste in your mouth of acid? If you have, things are not good with you. You're not in a good state health-wise. That's so interesting that sour then is not about what we eat, but about our physiological state, really. I never thought about the, the sense of taste actually being an important indicator mm. for that. It is in many ways. I mean... Sad to say, there, there are people who say, I'm tasting everything as very sweet. Everything seems to be sweet. That can actually be an indicator to medics of, of the fact that someone's got a lung tumor. So, you know, sometimes tasting things in the mouth is coming from your internal state and it is a way of measuring you. But most of the time, our tastes are there to gear us up to what's in the materials that I'm shoving in my mouth and do I want to go on doing it or, or do I want to reject them? And of course, lots of us have different taste preferences. How much of that is just, you know, this is what you ate as a child and so this is what you'll love as an adult? And how much of it, you know, is there any sort of genetic component to taste that taste that we enjoy? There are some genetic components, but there are also some ways in which you begin to set your taste preferences in utero. Lovely work showing that what the mother is eating in the ambiotic fluid will influence what the child finds acceptable. So... Uh, one of the Ben Marshall studies, he had one group of expectant mothers drinking fennel smoothies and the other group told to avoid aniseed or fennel in the diet. Mm. Now, when the newborns from the two groups are given milk with a little bit of fennel flavor to it, the children whose mothers were taking the smoothie are happy and the other ones are just bleh, spit it wow. out. So your, your taste preferences will be fixed partly by what the mother gave you. Then, of course, there are preferences that are fixed by genetics. So, for example, coriander or cilantro. We know that there are some people who can eat handfuls of it and think it's delicious. And then there are people like me who think, oh, it tastes soapy and metallic. So there's just a difference in the genetic profile of these two groups as to whether they'll find it soapy and metallic or whether they'll find it just a herb. 
I'm of the big fan of coriander types and I think you might be the first coriander hater that I've, <laughs> I've ever knowingly met. I always feel so sorry for you guys. There's another one you hear about cucumber, I think. Yes. Some people have, because I'm always interested in cucumber because I love cucumber as as it is in a salad i'll eat it on its own or dip it in hummus all great in sandwiches to me the entire sandwich now smells and tastes like cucumber and i once heard that there are some people who basically are more sensitive to the smell of cucumber yes there's a particular compound in it nonanel which is one of those aldehydes which is very liked by some and hated by others but the interesting thing about the cucumber is the the cucumber compound is also in watermelon. And in fact, you can think of a cucumber as an unsweetened watermelon. I've often told people, put a little sugar on your cucumber and then pop it in your mouth. It's just watermelon. It's like an unripe watermelon. So usually if you don't like one, you won't like the other. So we talked about, you know, in sort of how visually our environment can affect how much we enjoy something. What about our other senses, like what we're listening to? So sound will have a very strong impact on, on what we perceive in the tastes of our food and, and in a very interesting way. So a lot of us are used now to eating in very noisy restaurants and it turns out that white noise in your ears of about 79 decibels and above interferes with the brain's processing of salt, sweet and sour from the tongue, reducing it maybe by as much as 15%. And so when you're on an aeroplane and you're getting that din of the cabin noise of the engines, that means that you won't taste as much in the food with your tongue. And in fact, you can cure that by wearing noise-canceling headphones. And in fact, Lufthansa seem to intuitively know this because they gave their business class passengers Bose noise-canceling headphones. And they all said, oh, the food is much better on Lufthansa. That's maybe why. So what, what's happening there? Very interesting. If you're in a noisy restaurant, you're eating, try having you know, a mouthful of food in your mouth, chewing, put your fingers in your ears, and you'll find that it intensifies the perception of what you're eating. And that's because your, your, your auditory apparatus and, and is actually paying attention to hearing you eat. So if it's distracted by having other signals, you don't have the reinforcing signal that tells you what it is you're eating. So in fact, as you bite into a crisp apple, nice crunchy feel, if you bit into an apple and you had the feeling of the hardness of the apple, but none of that crunch sound, you'd think that's a bit odd, that's a bit weird, something's wrong with this apple. And similarly, uh, my friend and uh, another collaborator, Charles Spence, won the Ig Nobel Prize for his work on potato chips. So if you're eating potato chips and you leave them out of the box, say Pringles, you leave them out of the box for a couple of days, they're stale, right? We don't like them, they're stale. But if you put headphones on and you amplify the high frequency sound of your own crunching, they taste fresh. Oh my God. So fresh is actually not just a feel, but also a sound. And that means your auditory cortex is actually listening to your eating. And it's, it's one of the signals that's going in to, to assess what's going on here. How do things taste? And, and an auditory neuroscientist in Germany, uh, Benedict Groth, told me that probably the origins of the auditory cortex were first about just listening to the noises of your jaw munching and chewing to give you another bit of feedback on how 
much resistance there was to what you were eating. And then the auditory cortex starts listening to things outside in the world. So it's not surprising that sound has an impact on taste. After talking about food like this, I was now officially very hungry. And with our first course ready, Rob brought over a plate of oysters in their shells on a pile of ice, covered in a lightly spicy sauce and with a sprig of coriander on top. Oh, look at that. That's so beautiful. And after an important first step... So I always say to people, you know, we eat first with the eyes, but actually we eat first with the mobile phone these days. (laughs) We were ready to tuck in. Oh, my God. That's extremely delicious. Thank you. Thank you. One of the most interesting things about an oyster is that it's all about texture. Proteins by themselves don't taste very much. You have to do things to proteins to make them taste, and that's because the compounds in them are too big to sit nicely on your receptors. They don't have very much taste. It's only when you break them down or add something to them or roast them or grill them set up a Maillard reaction, which is a cascade of chemicals that are starting to give the protein flavor. Then you produce more small molecules that can land on the tongue and you can taste them. The other thing that's in here is a whole lot of umami. So an oyster is a carrier, major carrier of umami, and it's two types of umami. You get glutamates and you get ribonucleotides. Glutamates you'll get in peas, you'll get in tomatoes, you'll get in parmesan cheese and so on. But in an oyster, you've both got glutamate, but you've also got inosinate, which is in there. And when those two types of umami combine, it's called synergistic umami, and it's even more intense. And the thing that I really love is a colleague of mine worked on a paper about combining oysters and champagne. And that's been a you know, familiar combination. People like it. They think it's very pleasurable. There's a scientific reason why they go together, not just a cultural one. So there is glutamic acid in uh, champagnes because when it's been on the lees the dying lees give out glutamate but you can't quite taste it in the champagne when you have a mouthful of champagne lovely now you have the oyster and you get a build-up of that umami in the mouth you then raise the threshold for for perceiving the glutamate in the champagne now seems rich and deep and pleasurable so they're they're a match made in heaven Rob headed back to the kitchen to prepare our next course, while I seized my chance to ask Barry about one of my favourite flavours. So in the dish that we just had, there was jalapeno, so chilli, and that's spicy. What makes something spicy? So the spice is is attaching itself to yet another flavour sense. It's not taste, it's not smell, it's not just touch. It's the trigeminal nerve. So the trigeminal nerve is the fifth cranial nerve that serves the eyes, the nose and the mouth and it originates from just behind the ear and it's the one that rings bells when you have too much wasabi and you feel it at the bridge of the nose. Interestingly that's where it sort of tingles but with a chili you've got capsaicin in there and capsaicin irritates the trigeminal nerve endings and it doesn't just give you that pain in the bridge of the nose it gives you the feeling of local oral burning so you feel as though your tongue is actually on fire. And it's, it's not, and that's bluffing the heat receptors into thinking there's a burning damage happening when it isn't damaging at all. And notice also, it can be chilies or pepper making something taste warm, 
or menthol making something taste cool. So you've got two kinds of receptors, one for the cool sensations and one for the, the warming sensations. So I absolutely love spicy food. Do we know why some people love it and some people don't? Is there a genetic component to that as well or is it just sort of what you grew up with? There is going to be a genetic component to that because your trigeminal nerve endings are going to spring up where the papillae are, the taste buds are. They're going to be right alongside those taste receptors. And that means that if you've got many taste receptors on your tongue, densely packed, you're going to have many, many trigeminal nerve endings on the tongue at the same time. So quite often people who've got a lot of taste buds on the tongue, and we call them super tasters, they tend to say, oh, I don't like anything too spicy. I don't like anything too hot. But there will also be your sensitivity, your individual sensitivity to spice and how much that trigeminal firing of those nerve endings irritates you and gives you a reaction that's just a little bit too much. Having told us about super tasters, Barry then brought out some tasting strips for us to try. Okay, now, let's, we'll do this together. So I'm now going to give you a tasting strip, which is a strip that's soaked in phenothiocarbamide, but not with much tiny bit. And this is just going to see whether or not we taste things in the same way. So a little bit of moisture on the tongue. And then what I'm going to ask you to do is lay it on the tongue and then take it into the mouth. And then tell me what it tastes of, if anything. To me, I know this will make me not a super taster. It tastes like a piece of paper. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I'd say it pretty, mu- pretty much tastes like paper. Yeah. You're not alone as a chef in, in having that. So you get three reactions typically with people. You get some people who, as soon as it touches the tongue, they go, oh, that's disgusting. Their face creases up. You say, take it out. You have other people who find it mildly bitter. And then I can can detect a... Slowly coming, slowly, mild bitterness from it. And it's the kind of bitterness you get in in an aspirin, if you were chewing on an aspirin. Yeah, exactly right. So that's creeping up. And then there are other people for whom it will always remain like a bit of paper. And these are super tasters, tasters, and so-called non-tasters. Mm. Now, I think those are terrible labels. I think <laughs> the labels are not right. Super taster is someone who's uh, very, very sensitive to the compound there and to bitter things in general. And it's because they've got more taste buds on the tongue and they're more densely packed mm. together. And then when your taste buds are a little more spread out, you're not going to react so quickly. And if your taste buds are really spread out, you'll need an awful lot of that substance to get any response, which explains what people differ on when it comes to salt. Because if you're, Mm. what makes something salty is how many taste buds are simultaneously touched by any CL uh, molecules. So if you uh, have them together, you need a tiny sprinkle. If they're very far apart, you sprinkle more to get the same hit. So we live in different taste worlds. And I always say to people who are extremely reactive to this bit of paper, and you know, if you do this with corporates, they're all high-fiving each other for the super tasters. And then you say to them, are you a fussy eater? And they say, oh, yes. And you don't like spices. Oh, no, I don't like spices. And yeah. I know, you know, Brussels sprouts, oh, no, and coffee's too bitter and so on. So I call them fussy eaters. <laughs> and then the people who say tastes like paper, I call them adventurous eaters because they want a lot going on. Mm. They want spice, they want salt, they want chili and so on. And... I think a lot of chefs, when, when they first heard about this, were always very disappointed they weren't super tasters. You don't want to be a super taster no. because it means there'll be lots of things that are just too much for you. You want to be in the adventurous end of things. So 
That's good. Lovely. I'm proud to be a non-taster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, likewise. Exactly, exactly. Continuing the trend of experimenting on ourselves during our meal, Barry brought out some very fetching accessories for us to use during our main course. We're going to be very naughty with you. First of all, tell us what it is. And then before we taste it, we're going to make us taste something first with the nose clip and then remove the nose clip just to see how much smells involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what we got? This is beef rump aged and grilled. We've got a little kebab of beef heart on a rosemary skewer, a classic Bernay sauce, obviously with loads of tarragon through that, and a little bit of wilted cavolo nero. That's all on the central plate. And then we've each got a little side bowl of really luxurious, rich stuff. So on the bottom, we've got braised beef shin in a beef sauce. We've got a creamy polenta on top of that, a beef fat crumb, and some nasturtium leaves. Bloody wow. hell. That's a lot. <laughs> Stick a nose clip on me. Right, nose clip. So, so the drill here is that it... This is going to sound... Can I take that? This is going to sound hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's, if, it, if it doesn't sound like that, I know people are cheating. I want you to take in a breath of air, and we're going to chew with our mouths closed, and then, at a certain point, we'll take the nose clip off, and then we'll see what, what we get. Okay, so if we take a tiny bit of the meat... Just a little tiny corner of the steak and a bit of Bernays, if you will. Okay. And then a little breath of air, pop at the mouth, and we'll all go together. Ready? Go. Now take the nose clip off. Oh my God. Different? That's mm. crazy. Crazy, right? I didn't think it would be that different. Yeah, hugely different. It's like you, I mean, I don't know what, I feel like especially the sauce, the, the flavors sauce. of the sauce yeah. comes it's like it's not there and then it appears yeah. in my mouth yeah, yeah. well yeah. You, you it's amazing how you are still able to perceive the acidity of it yeah. without any of the flavor without any of the flavor so it shows you have that rush through right shows you that all the tongue is giving you is salt sweet sour bitter or umami but none of those flavors we polished off our meal with a coffee cake topped with truffle, caramel and celeriac ice cream coated in a coffee mousse and covered with cocoa nibs. Honestly, it was such an amazing combination of flavours that I never would have put together myself. I mean, it was mushroom flavoured caramel. It was unbelievably delicious. And now I know that must be because of all that umami. Thanks so much to Rob Parks and Barry Smith for chatting to me this week. Join us in two weeks' time as we continue growing up with the science of puberty and adolescence. From brain structure changes to the surprising benefits of being a risk-taking teenager, we're digging into the neuroscience of this important, and occasionally stigmatised, stage of life. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.